So over the last few weeks, we have been in a series called We Believe. We've been looking specifically at the the Nicene Creed and the core tenets of the Christian faith that were put together in the fourth century. Now, this isn't just a, a document that came up out of nowhere as we talked about last week. There's a specific context and there's certain conversations that are going on underneath of the surface that have caused the Nicene Creed to look the way that it does. And last week we began to engage specifically this large section within the creed on Jesus. This is by far the longest um, piece of information that the folks writing the creed want us to understand because at this time the identity of Jesus was something that was very weighty and something that people were calling into question and having a difference of opinion on and they wanted to nail down who Jesus was. So last week we looked at this uh, section in the creed. It says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. And we talked about how last week there was this guy named Arius in the fourth century, and he was beginning to teach that Jesus was a little less than God. He wasn't quite as divine as God the Father, and he was something less than, he was better than us and more divine than humans, but at the same time, he wasn't quite God. So we have this language within the creed which is so over the top. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's begotten, he's not made, because what Arius was saying was that Jesus was a created being that comes from God the Father. So this language has a specific context. It's rooted within the fourth century, but this is still things that, is, that are important for us to understand today, namely who Jesus is. And last week we introduced some of these topics, and this is weighty stuff that's very difficult to, to make sense of, but we started talking about the Trinity. And we talked about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and how these three persons are in complete unity together. They are co-eternal. They are all eternal. Not one of them has a longer lifespan than the other lifespan, if you wanna think in those terms. And anytime we begin to use terms like that, it just begins to break down because we can't compartmentalize or encapsulate who God is in all of his being because we are finite beings. But these three persons are co-eternal and they're co-equal. It is not as though God the Father is here and Jesus is here and the Holy Spirit is here. All three are working in perfect harmony together. They are in relationship together and they have been from all time. Pause for a moment and begin to try to wrap your brains around that, even though it's impossible for us. These three persons that are one have been in relationship for all time. Now, they do have different jobs, and this has caused us to stumble a bit when we look at Scripture uh, we have God the Father who is sending Jesus to accomplish salvation, and we have Jesus who is dying and being resurrected from the dead to accomplish salvation. We have the Holy Spirit who is allowing us to experience salvation, and each of these three have different jobs, yet they are of the same essence. They are of the same divine nature. They are of the same godness if you will. And this is what the creed is trying to bring to bear. Now, it's interesting that the creed starts here with Jesus being completely and totally divine because that's not how people experienced Jesus. Throughout the Bible, what we have is people who go to visit little eight-pound, six-ounce 
infant baby Jesus in the manger looking at his baby Einstein developmental videos and they, they're going there to meet baby Jesus and we see Jesus as this precocious 12 year old in the temple and we see these different images of Jesus and people not knowing how to deal with him but after his death and his resurrection it becomes a little bit more clear who Jesus is and the creed starts with that divine being of Jesus. We do have some text within the Bible. This is Paul after the resurrection, writing after Jesus' death and resurrection. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, in the core of Jesus' being, he is divine. And that what he says here is, is interesting and it's worth noting and we'll come back to it. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus did not succumb to the power and the authority that he could enact over people, but he set that aside. It says that he becomes um, humbled to the point of a servant. Another text in Colossians, this is Paul writing, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Christ is the head over every power and authority. Jesus is the fullness of the deity living in bodily form. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Anything that we think to be true about God is demonstrated in Jesus, or at least proven to be true in Jesus. Jesus, according to the Nicene Creed and according to Orthodox Christianity, is God. But this claim is cloaked in tension and it's cloaked in mystery as we talked about last week. This idea of the Trinity, three persons in one, there's tension there because if we're gonna say God the Father is God and then Jesus is God, we start to, in our logic, it seems to break down a bit. And there's mystery surrounding how this comes to be and how Jesus is God, yet also human. We have these claims to be true about Jesus. And last week, what I wanted to at least begin to help us think through is when we claim together, we believe. There's a mutuality between us where we are sometimes leaning upon the shoulder of the person next to us. That doesn't mean that our faith becomes theirs, but there's power within community there's power within a shared belief, a shared commitment, a shared understanding that Jesus is God and what that means for us. Now today we're gonna transition from this claim that Jesus is God to what Jesus did while he was here on earth. The creed says this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. One scholar, this is Luke Timothy Johnson, he says, here is the heart of the creed. Here is the story that for Christians, it defines the difference between the old and the new age, between the first and the new creation. Here is the confession of Jesus as the incarnate son of God that arose out of the church's powerful experience of his resurrection. Tonight, we are talking about the incarnation. 50 cent fancy theological term for God becoming human. Jesus taking on 
flesh and what that means for us. Now, my uh, struggle to make this relatable to us is a reach. It is a big, fat reach, and I hope that you will just allow me to take us there and hopefully make sense of this, okay? So when Kate and I lived in Los Angeles, we had tickets to go see the Avet Brothers in, this is called LA Live. So we got the Staples Center, we got the Nokia Theater, we got all kinds of stuff there. And we went out to a nice little meal, I think we got a cheeseburger or something, and we were walking to this place and we saw there was this hubbub going on. And in LA, there's usually a hubbub, but there was people and they're kind of like moving quickly and they're all going to one single space. And, and we figured out that there was a celebrity sighting that was happening. And for folks from Willards, Maryland, and Laurel, Delaware, celebrity sightings were really, really cool stuff, okay? So we're walking to go see the Avert Brothers, which is neat on its own. They put on an awesome show. Go see them. They're here on November 19th at the Civic Center, which is ridiculous. Okay, that's a side note. So Kate and I are going to see these guys, and we see this hubbub that's happening, and we figure out very quickly that the person that is there is none other than A.C. Slater from Saved by the Bell. You might know him as Mario Lopez and his work on Access Hollywood, whatever, but I think for Kate and I, we know him as A.C. Slater, so we start to, to inch around and to see how close we could get just to see what was going on here. It was A.C. Slater in the flesh. <laughs> I got a few eye rolls on that one. Now, I also have to say this, and I picked this picture intentionally, and this really has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but Kate and I, um, becoming the... LA socialites that we were not, we did receive a tip that you could see Dennis Haskins, who plays Mr. Belding, at a little dive bar called Dimples in Burbank, California, where we went to sing karaoke. Because the word on the street was that Dennis Haskins was there from time to time, kind of emceeing the whole thing. So Kate and I, we go to sing karaoke, and I'm there in a Viking hat and a feather boa and... Um, Totally sober, if that helps anything. And I'm singing You Give Love a Bad Name by Bon Jovi. And who walks in? None other than, not Mr. Belding, Idris Elba. And as I'm singing, he says, get it, Josh. Because they had announced me as the singer of the song. And Idris Elba, in the flesh, ladies, says, get it, Josh. There's a difference between seeing these folks on TV and then being able to engage with them in real life. Okay, now that admittedly is a real reach when we're thinking about God in the flesh. But we can't really do much better than that because we have no concept really of what's going on with Jesus. And I think as 21st century Americans, we have lost the mystery and the magic. Here Kate and I are, we are devoted followers of Jesus. We have the spirit of God living inside of us. We are children of the most high. But when we see Mario Lopez, it's like, oh my goodness, Mario, you know. What has happened? Well, we have lost that mystery of God himself is a part of us. Going where we go and leading the way. So this, this, this example, yeah, it breaks down, but it also demonstrates something that's true about us in the sense that we might have missed the, the, the mystery of this for other things, for more consumeristic American entertainment type of things. 
The incarnation is beautifully encapsulated by Eugene Peterson, who was the translator behind the message. He's like an 85-ish year old pastor, and he's just a brilliant man and a, a brilliant communicator, and he's just saturated within the word of God. But the way that he describes Jesus becoming flesh is this. This is in John 1, and you have to realize that John 1, this is the prologue to the gospel, and it's just really weird. It's very philosophical and very theological. So he, he begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word is, is Jesus here, but he makes that clear in verse 14 where he says, the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. I believe the, the Greek term there, if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere in, in John 1, is uh, he tabernacled with these people. And for an ancient audience that cared about things like temple and tabernacle, for, for the author to use that sort of verb is, is insightful. But here we have Jesus becoming one of us and moving into the neighborhood. Try to wrap your mind around that. And Jesus becomes one of us. He moves into the neighborhood the creed says, for us and for our salvation. The life that Jesus lived, the things that he taught, the miracles that he did, the sacrifice that he made, it's not a stretch to say it was for you and it was for me and it was for our salvation. Now, I've just got, I believe, three different points that I think can, can bring um, some more understanding to this idea. Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus in his humanity. Now, there's another theological term that we might need to throw out there. It's called the hypostatic union. Everybody say hypostatic union. It means that Jesus is fully God while also being fully human. Like you can't really, you can't bring that down to, to making a lot of sense. But Jesus is fully divine while also being fully human. Within our time in the church, I think we usually err on the side of fully divine and we limit the humanity of Jesus. And maybe tonight I want to recapture some of that, not to put it above his divinity, but to at least allow us to see that the things that he went through, they were real. A lot of times we even forget Jesus identifying with us, going through the things that we go through, something as simple as the passages where Jesus is eating a meal and drinking with his friends. That sounds a lot more pejorative in our context than it would have back then, but Jesus engaged in meal sharing with people. It's a very like fundamentally human activity but Jesus taking on flesh becomes one of us. Not only that, but he was also tempted. There's a story early on in the Gospel of Matthew that retells this story in a certain way, and I wanna just read some of it to you. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And when you think about wilderness, what do you think of? Say it again. Trees, perhaps. What else? Desert in the back, yep, what else? Is the wilderness usually a habitable place or no? Not necessarily. 
Jesus in the wilderness, and he was there, and he was tempted by the devil. And it says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And this is where Jesus begins to engage the tempter or the devil or the Satan, the adversary, with scripture himself. And he says, it is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and this is where the adversary begins to use scripture, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answers him saying, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, he says. If you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. These temptations in many ways are similar to our experience. Now, I want you to hold on to this image of, and I want you to paint a little bit more of a, I understand we could have a, a wilderness being a bit more habitable in our sense, but let's think of a, an Israelite wilderness, which is usually just kind of desert sort of place, and Jesus taking on temptation within this desert place. He identifies with us because we also are tempted and we are also um, enticed by the adversary. And I want us to hold on to this image because Jesus was tempted and he's identifying with us and going through the things that we also go through. There's also a story where Jesus weeps. This is in uh, the Gospel of John, and for the kids that grew up in church or went to Christian school, whenever there was like a pop memory verse quiz and you could put down whatever memory verse you wanted to, you know and I know we've all been there, and we go, Jesus wept. And we just kind of think it's cutesy, but behind it is a, a humongous theology here where Jesus is demonstrating himself to be one who identifies with us. This story is so great in its demonstration of Jesus' humanity. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Jesus, you know this story, some of you. Jesus had already stalled his trip. His friends had said, hey, uh, your friend, he's sick. We need to go see him. And Jesus had said, we'll wait. We've got other things that we need to do. Knowing what's going to happen and the fact that uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Some have said that within uh, a first century context, this means that Lazarus was deader than dead, like really, really dead. Uh, the King James Version says of one of these verses that Lazarus stinketh, okay? Let's just tuck that away. Um, now, Bethany was close to where they had been. It's less than two miles away, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha. Those are the sisters of Lazarus to comfort them uh, with the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. This is Martha talking. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, to which her answer is interesting. I know Jesus. I know he will rise again. That's not the issue I'm talking about right now because in their mindset, they were already thinking about the resurrection after death, the physical bodily resurrection of these folks when they would rise from the dead. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. 
and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Mary is is a bit different in her approach to Jesus. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And she said, come and see. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, it says, Jesus wept. Do not miss the humanity of this text where Jesus is in relationship with these two women and Lazarus, his own friend who has died, and the raw emotions that are being ripped to the surface in this moment. This is not just a cutesy, I want to get through this quiz in my sixth grade Bible memory verse pop quiz. This is theologically loaded. The Jews even said, see how he loved him. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, take away the stone. And they kind of reject that because they don't want there to be this bad odor. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And Jesus eventually says, Lazarus, come out. And he does. We have Jesus who is identifying with us in his raw emotions, and we see these emotions also in his prayer the night that he was betrayed. Jesus in the garden, on his hands and knees, praying to his dad to do something different than what was about to take place. I believe that we have tamed this prayer, and we have jumped too quickly to the not my will, but your will be done and we haven't sat within the wrestling and the tension of Jesus in his humanity, praying these big, bold prayers that God would do something different. Eventually, Jesus would suffer and die, and in that, he is identifying with us. He has taken on flesh to eventually be here to suffer and to die, as the Bible would say, for us and for our salvation. There's a text in Hebrews that says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus has identified with us. Now, for a lot of my life, when I read this passage, I I go to the bit where it says he's been tempted in every way, and I I start to think about my own sin patterns and the things that I struggle with and wrestle with, and I, I have solace in the fact that Jesus understands and he knows and he's been there. I believe that's true. However, I want to expand this a bit in the identification of of Jesus with humanity. Jesus was living within a system of oppression. Jesus was living within a society that was against him. Jesus was living within a world where people wanted him dead. I don't think that this passage is just about 
oh man, I really struggle with X, Y, and Z, and Jesus knows what that is, so I can, I can pray to him. This is something that's so much bigger than that. Jesus understands the fundamental human problem where people suffer underneath of prejudice and hatred, perhaps racism, perhaps sexism, perhaps all these different isms where we have been classified in certain ways. And I think that Jesus in the life that he lived, he understands those pressures and those realities. And yet in the midst of that, he has not sinned. And in the midst of that, he has created something completely alternative to the problems that we see in our nation, and he is desperately calling us to join him in that fight. I hope that we're not just limiting Jesus to, yes, he does identify with us, and he understands where we are, and he understands what we, what we go through, but on a much broader scale, he, he sympathizes with the difficulties that we have been through, the difficulties that we will go through, the abandonment, the, um, the loss, the pain, perhaps the suffering and the oppression and perhaps these different things that we go through, Jesus understands and Jesus knows and as a result, we should be bold when we approach his throne of grace, knowing that we have a savior who cares about us in the midst of our brokenness. Now Jesus also, in his humanity, he invites critique on certain things. For one, Jesus was not seduced by power. Jesus could have done a lot of things differently, yet he did not. He was one who taught that we don't um, return violence with violence, but we turn the other cheek. He was one that taught these radical teachings where we become great by becoming servant of all. I don't think that that means that we just kind of take whatever is given to us, but we see the example that Jesus sets where he is not seduced by power and by authority and by status. No, he seems to live within this mindset of doing things for the other. That text in Philippians, it says, have the same mind and the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus takes on the very nature of a servant, and Jesus washes others' feet. We live in a society, however, where we have become seduced by power and by status and by taking whatever advantage that we have and using it to our end. And I think the message of Jesus and the gospel is telling us to go in a different direction. Jesus identifies with us, but Jesus in his humanity is also inviting critique on our very lives and the way that we live. And perhaps that means that we are consumed by things and materialistic desires, or perhaps that means that we are consumed by lust and lust for power and lust for prestige and status. Perhaps that means that we are consumed with envy. Perhaps it means a whole number of things where Jesus is inviting to critique that that's not the way it should be. And finally, Jesus completes Israel's story by becoming human. In the midst of this incarnation, he brings the story of Israel to its end. In the very beginning, go back with me, Genesis 1 and 2, in the very beginning, God creates 
humankind and he places them in a garden. It's lush, it's verdant, it's green, it's fruitful, it's, it's beautiful. And he gives them one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And within this story, the way that it works out, they disobey the command and as a result, they are removed from the green, good, fruit-bearing land. But God is not done with these people. He engages in a relationship with Israel by calling Abraham by calling Isaac, by calling Jacob and pledging himself to them. Eventually he gives them the law that they should follow and he puts them in a good land flowing with milk and honey. And their command is to follow the laws of God. But they don't. Time and time again they don't with the kings and with all these different folks that show up that, that are less than what God has envisioned. They don't accomplish the task that God had given humanity in the beginning. They keep falling short so much so that Israel gets removed from the good green land and is exiled from their home. And they begin asking all these questions about, does God even love us? Is God still committed to us? Does God still want us to be in a relationship with him? And we see how the patterns from the very beginning keep repeating themselves over and over and over until Jesus shows up. And this is interesting because, remember, Jesus goes into the wilderness, the not green, the not lush, the not verdant, and he is given temptations. Jesus is seduced to go in the wrong direction, yet Jesus does not. Jesus becomes, in a sense, everything that we needed him to be and everything that God had called us to be that we could not be. Jesus becomes that for us. And throughout the Bible, we have seen God's people kind of rejecting and stiff-arming God and going in their own direction and just kind of wanting to do things their own way. And we see the logical culmination of that in the people so stiff-arming God that they end up crucifying his son on the cross and Jesus saying, they know not what they do, forgive them. And Jesus takes on the weight of the guilt and the shame and the sin that we have placed on him and he carries it to completion for us and for our salvation. And all we have to do is believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and then begin to live in light of that reality, to begin to be someone who fights for justice and for the people on the margins and begins to allow people to come in and begin to forgive those that have hurt us and harmed us, begin to be one who lives counter-culturally seeing the goodness that Jesus has allowed us to receive. Jesus, in his humanity, allows this story to come to completion. What we usually do is we read Genesis and we see people sinning and then we jump right to Jesus. And in so doing, we skip a thousand pages of the Old Testament where this pattern is just replicated over and over and over and God is still pleading with his people to be who he has called them to be and they are not that. But now through Jesus and through the spirit working in us, we can be the people that God is calling us to be, agents of reconciliation, agents of redemption, agents of grace, people that 
begin to forgive the other. My question today for us is, have we understood that Jesus has achieved for us and for our salvation all of these things? Or have we settled for something less than? Do we not quite understand how Jesus has identified with us? Do we not understand the critique that he demonstrates where he's calling us to be a different kind of person, a transformed person, a person that looks more and more like him? And do we not quite understand how we fit into this story? Real quick, the reason why we are called the Restoration Project is because we believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring all things. And when we believe in him, he is allowing us to participate in that ongoing work. As N.T. Wright would say, we are building for the kingdom. And we demonstrate that through our relationships. We demonstrate that by the way that we treat one another. We demonstrate that by the way that we invite others into this story that is bigger than just me and just you. It is cosmic in scope that Jesus is putting all things to rights. I hope that we begin to see a picture of that and a piece of that and we grab it for ourselves because for some of you in the room, all you have known your entire life is the wrongness that has been perpetrated against you. All that you know is the things that have weighed heavy on you. And this gospel and this story is one of wholeness and restoration and peace. There's others of you in this room where your life is antagonistic towards the gospel and you're just kind of on the fence and you don't really want it and you just live in your own way. And what this story is inviting you into is a different way of living where it's not just about you and your status and your power and prestige and the things that you can get. It's about living as a servant to become great. It's about putting others before yourself and it's about understanding that we have been forgiven much and living differently because of that. My hope tonight that as we see Jesus in his humanity where he's weeping and he's eating and he's, he's one of us that we see this broader picture where he is inviting us in to participate with him in something great. And for some of you that starts with a conversation. It starts with a conversation with the person that you have ostracized. It starts with a conversation of forgiveness. It starts with forgiving yourself. For some of you, it might just be beginning to believe that God wants you and that God can use you. My hope tonight is that we begin to see these words and grasp them for what they are for us and for our salvation. He became human. He died and he rose again. And his kingdom will never end and he's inviting you in.